is this that uh, I know Jurgen Klopp. Uh, Jurgen Klopp, the manager, Liverpool FC, I know him. It's not uh, something I like to brag about, not something I talk about very much, but um, I met him a number of years ago. Uh, we uh, connected really well, we struck up a bit of friendship. He let me have his phone number, and I've been friends with him for a few years now. You might think that's a bit, a bit of a surprising thing for me to share with you. Or maybe actually you don't think it's very surprising. You know, when you think of the, the kind of circles that someone like me moves in, it's not very surprising at all to think that I'd know Jurgen Klopp. Well, if you believe that, you'll believe anything. I, uh, I don't really know Jurgen Klopp at all, as much as I'd like to. And uh, anyone who really knows me will know that I'm a terrible liar. I'm really not very good at lying. I don't know Jurgen Klopp at all, uh, even if I would uh, claim to really know him. Well, John makes a claim in his letter which is far greater and uh, far better than that claim, a claim which is credible and true. John actually claims he knows Jesus Christ himself. He uh, lived amongst Jesus. He knew Jesus for himself. And he also says he knows the Father, uh, God the Father. He enjoys fellowship with God the Father and God the Son. And John says that through his testimony, the testimony of the apostles, we can know them too for ourselves. We can know the Father, the Son, and enjoy fellowship with them as we listen to their words, we're faithful to what they say and what they teach us. Now it's really helpful to know actually in the churches, in the context which John was writing into, he was actually writing into a context where there was competing claims, contradictory claims, false claims, uh, people are trying to take them away from John's teaching and the apostle teaching and the relationship they could have with God the Father and God the Son. Uh, there was a number of false teachers which had arisen in the churches which John was writing to. And these false teachers making false claims were uh, affecting people's walk with the Lord. They were knocking their confidence, undermining their confidence and uh, uh, really unsettling them as well and unsettling their assurance. And so uh, John, one of his uh, big purposes in, in writing this letter for them and for us was to rebut these false claims, these counterclaims, which were taking people astray, and also to reassure the Christians and to reassure us. He both wants to rebut these false contrary claims and also to reassure them, rebuttal and reassurance. And there are two areas which come up in our passage today, touching areas which might be relevant for us at some point in our Christian life, both to do with how can I have a clear conscience and also how can I have assurance in my walk with the Lord? There might be questions which you think are relevant to us, questions you might have asked or will ask at some point in the future. How can I have a clear conscience and how can I also have reassurance? And John wants to uh, answer both those questions. He wants to reassure them as well that they're on the right track, not to listen to these false claims, like my claim, I know Jurgen Klopp, uh, but listen to his claims. His claims are true, that he knew Jesus, and they were on the right track, and to stay on that track in listening to the apostles' teaching. So he wants to rebut and reassure them, and particularly as well to answer these two questions. How can we have a clear conscience in our walk with the Lord, and how can we have assurance that we are on the right track with the Lord? So we're looking at those two questions this morning. So first, those questions then. How can we have a clear Conscience, how to have a clear conscience. This is from uh, chapter 1, verse 6 through to 2, verse 2. So let me read that section again for us. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. 
But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is a propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. I think it's probably a common experience all of us have had at some time of either knowing we are guilty and have a guilty conscience or at least feeling guilty of something, feeling we have a guilty conscience. Uh, maybe something we said, or maybe something we did, which sticks in our mind and makes us feel bad. We all know what it's like to have a, a guilty conscience about something. Now, there's a true story told of uh, the writer, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. You might have heard this. Uh, Conan Doyle was the man who wrote the Sherlock Holmes stories. But one time, apparently, he wanted to play a joke on some of his acquaintances, people he knew. So what he did was he wrote a letter to 12 acquaintances of his. And in this letter, it simply said the words, Flee, all has been discovered. Flee, all has been discovered. These people opened the letter. And apparently the story is that six of them who received the letter, as soon as they heard it, as they, as they read it, six of them actually fled the country within the next 24 hours because uh, of the threat in the letter. And uh, presumably because uh, those six individuals had a guilty conscience about something which they didn't want other people to find out about. Well, where do we go then if we want to have a clear conscience? Yeah, having a clear conscience is quite precious and valuable. Uh, some people have said having a clear conscience is, is like bliss. Having a clear conscience can be a difference between having a good night's sleep and having a broken night's sleep. There's a quite a famous outspoken humanist uh, called, if I pronounce her name rightly, called Marganita Lasky. Uh, she was a humanist and she said that the one thing she actually envied about Christianity, which she didn't have, the one thing she envied, envied about Christianity was our forgiveness. And she said, I have nowhere to turn to find forgiveness. So she envied the, the forgiveness she saw in Christianity. Well, John knows and God knows at times we will stumble and fall into sin. Uh, and God has provided a way for us to have a clear conscience through the work of Jesus and through walking before God in his light and with integrity. So John reminds us, and as Tony was speaking on, that uh, God is light. To say that God is light is to say that God is pure, God is truthful, God is utterly holy in all he is. In God there's no darkness at all. There's nothing in God that isn't holy, isn't pure or perfect. There's not a shred of sin in God. You know, when you hold up anything in comparison to God, everything else pales in comparison to him and his purity. There are lots of things we might think are white and spotless, maybe a white mug or the whiteness of our pews and our, uh, our decoration in this building. Actually, if we hold anything, even the whitest thing we know up to God, it, it just pales in comparison to his purity and white, his, his, his perfection. And because God is light, he also expects us to walk in his light, his truth and purity, living our lives before him. Uh, God expects there to be an integrity between both our public profession and our private practice. To be an integrity between them. Verse 6. 
says, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So God looks for integrity between the public profession and our private practice. It's one of the areas, isn't it, where the world still takes seriously and the world challenges us on at times. So the world does take seriously about uh, integrity. And if there's any great discrepancy between the public profession and the private practice, it can cause a scandal at times. People uh, detest hypocrisy. It can be damaging to relationships when, when there is that kind of big separation and something comes out about how somebody's private life is so different to their public profession. It really knocks credibility. One of the things that means for us then today is that God uh, does care about the areas of our life which nobody else actually sees. God knows how we spend our time when no one else is looking, how we act when we're at home, how you and I treat the people whom we live with at our our homes, Uh, what we look at on the internet, whether we're people who keep our word, whether we're people who keep, uh, pay our taxes or whether we try to evade our taxes. Are we marked by integrity and honesty? As has been said, you know, not just to talk the talk, we also have to walk the walk. And walking, that image of walking, is an image John uh, repeats, isn't it, in this passage and in this letter. Walking is an image of the Christian life, an idea of steady, uh, regular progress, walking with the Lord, progressing with him. It's what Eugene Peterson called a long obedience in the same direction. You're walking with the Lord over a long period of time. It doesn't matter if we're walking slowly or if we're plodding along and, and crawling along, but just keep walking in the same direction with the Lord, with fel- in fellowship with him. So what God said to Abraham, isn't it? God said to Abraham, he said, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. I remember a story I heard once from the evangelist Rico Tice, who at the time was working All Souls Langing Place. I think he's moved on now. Uh, he told the story of where one member of staff they had on their, uh, their team, All Souls Langing Place. And uh, with this member of staff, he's a junior member of staff, and it was uh, discovered that he and some of his friends were actually in their spare time visiting brothels and a uh, place like that and, and, and paying for sex with women. And uh, this junior member of staff was challenged about his behaviour. And when he was challenged about his behaviour, apparently his response was to say, well, this is my private life. It's none of your business. Who are you to tell me what I do in my private life? And you can imagine that actually junior member staff didn't spend very long uh, anymore in his job. You know, John says, verse 6, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. That's been integrity between the public profession and the private practice. It's quite challenging. But as well as that uh, uh, disjoint between public and private, which we could fall into, John actually highlights another area in which we could deny the, uh, what God says about sin, another way to walk in darkness, which is to simply uh, try and deny the reality of sin, actually to deny that sin even exists, to reject what God has to say about sin and the human condition. Verse 8 If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. To try and deny what God has to say about sin to us. 
Now, I wonder if actually today, in our generation, if that might be a particular challenge for our generation, that desire to uh, want to deny even the existence of sin. You know, for my generation, we have a lot of freedom today. We can choose our careers. We get to choose how we spend our time and our money. Well, how easy then it would be to think, well, I can also get to choose what is right and wrong. I can decide right and wrong for myself. I can choose my career. I can choose how I spend my time and money. Well, I like to think I can choose what's right and wrong as well. I, I get to make them up. I get to decide on them. I can uh, deny the existence of sin. I can try to redefine sin. I can relabel sin and decide what is right and wrong for myself rather than listening to what God has to say about sin and our human predicaments. There's a musician you might have heard of called uh, Lily Allen. Uh, she might not be everybody's cup of tea, but uh, she has a song called The Fear. And uh, in one of her songs, I think she says something like, like this we're thinking of today. She says, come up, in one of her songs she says this. Now I'm not a saint, but I'm not a sinner. And everything's cool as long as I'm getting thinner. I don't know what's right and what's real anymore. And I don't know how I'm meant to feel anymore. And when do you think it will all become clear? See that she denies the existence of sin. She isn't a sinner, she says. She doesn't accept God's uh, diagnosis of, our, of the human race, our condition. But John says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Now, as I said, John and God don't expect us to be perfect, God. And John knows that we stumble and do fall into sin at times. And God has provided a way for us to return to him, to have a clear conscience. And the way we can have a clear conscience again is in the passage through confession and repentance and then turning to trust in Jesus again. It's our pattern, remember, confession, repentance, and turning to trust in Jesus and his work again. So as well as telling us that God is light, John also reminds us that God is also faithful and just. He says God is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And the reason why John can say that uh, God is just is because God has provided a way for him both to be just and to punish sin, and also for you and I to have forgiveness today, to have both those things, both justice and forgiveness. And the way God has done that is he provided his son, Jesus, who gave his life on the cross for us, shedding his blood there, taking his pun our punishment for us, so that God's justice could be satisfied. So when you and I trust in Jesus, we can be forgiven because justice has already been served through what Jesus did for us. And so if, because justice has already been served through what Jesus did for us, then God won't mete out punishment again. He won't make uh, justice be given a second time because justice has already been served in the punishment Jesus took for us. So when we turn to him, we can be forgiven. Both justice is satisfied and we can be forgiven through Jesus' sacrifice. Now you might have noticed there's a number of uh, key words to describe Jesus and his work which come up in the passage. And we'll go through them each, each in turn, which I picked out for us. So firstly, John, uh, they'll come up on the screen if they can. Uh, so he calls it Jesus, he says, Jesus Christ is Jesus Christ the righteous. Jesus Christ the righteous. That's to say Jesus was perfect, lived the perfect life that God expects us to live. He satisfied all of God's righteous requirements. He also says Jesus is a propitiation for our sins. That's a bit of a harder word, maybe one we're less familiar of, maybe one we 
don't use so much today. To, to say something is a propitiation basically means that it uh, turns aside somebody's anger so that then they can be favourable to you. So God was rightfully angry at us, but his anger turned aside from us and landed on Jesus, and Jesus absorbed that anger. Uh, and now because Jesus took God's anger for us, actually God can now be favourable to us. God can be propitious to us, kind to us. And he also says that Jesus is an advocate. An advocate is one who speaks on behalf of another. So Jesus now, he stands in the presence of the Father and he speaks on our behalf to the Father. So whenever Satan might accuse you or I of wrongs we've done, ways we've failed, Jesus speaks on our behalf to the Father. He says, you know, look at the wounds. Look at the blood I shed, which has uh, been sprinkled on them. Look at the wounds in my side. And those accusations can no more stand in the presence of the Father. So when we stumble or when we sin or when we fall, when our conscience has been bruised by sin, there is a way back to have a clear conscience again by confessing, repenting, and turning to trust in Jesus and his work again. There's a song which captures this. We often sing at churches, that song before the throne of God above. Remind you of the words in that song. It says, When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because a sinless saviour died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. What good news we have of what Jesus did for us. But there is one uh, sentence in our passage which might puzzle us and make us wonder what John means. It's there in chapter 2, verse 2. What does John mean when he says this? He says, he is a propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. What does he mean when he says Jesus is a propitiation for the sins of the whole world? Does, is John saying he thinks that everybody will be saved? Is John a universalist? What does he mean when he says he's, he's a sacrifice for the sins of the whole world? Well, I don't think it can mean that John thinks that everybody will be saved. We know John wrote other books in the New Testament, like the book of Revelation. And we clearly see in Revelation there'll be a judgment day and not everybody will be saved. But I think he's saying that Jesus' sacrifice is sufficient for anyone who would trust in Christ. Jesus' sacrifice is entirely sufficient for anyone who would trust in Jesus. died for his people, the church... But if anyone would choose to trust in Jesus and his work, it's sufficient for anyone who would do that. In the Church of England, they have a liturgy where they say this. I think often it's communion. They say this, Jesus gave a full, perfect and sufficient sacrifice and oblation and satisfaction for the sins of the whole world. Jesus' sacrifice is sufficient. It's complete. Nothing else is needed. That means it's sufficient for you. And it's sufficient for me and anybody who would trust in Jesus. God's promise is if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We can know that today. There's some wonderful promises, aren't there, in God's word about the offer of forgiveness. We can know of having a conscience which is cleansed. Listen to what the prophet Micah said about this. Micah said this, he said, who is a God like you? He pardons sins and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance. You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. 
And Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Let's know the reality of these promises in our lives. So how do we have a clear conscience? We confess, we repent, and we trust in Jesus again. Well, let me ask you a few questions to think about on this, and we'll pause to think on these questions. I think these questions have come up on the screen for us to think about. Firstly, uh, are you walking in the light, or are you walking in darkness? Are you walking in the light, or are you walking in darkness? And do you know the blessing of having a clear conscience? We'll pause to think about those questions. I'll take a, give you a minute to think about them. Are you walking in the light, or are you walking in the darkness? And do you know the blessing of having a clear conscience through Jesus? Let's pause to think on those for a minute. Okay, so we thought about our first question, how to have a clear conscience. We're going to look at the second question John is starting to answer for them, which is how to have assurance. How to have assurance is from verse 3 to 6. I think it's a theme which comes up a number of times in John's letter, which we'll return to as he returns to themes in his letters. But verse 3 to 6 says this. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So John here in this section is touching on this question of how can we have assurance? How can I know that I'm one of God's people and God's done a real work in my life? As he touched on in the introduction, that seemed to be in a situation in the church as John was writing to, there was people making a number of false claims and seeming to pull the, the Christians away from following the apostles' teaching. And they were unsettling them. Uh, uh, they were affecting their assurance. And John writes to assure them they are on the right path. John knew the real Jesus. And they could enjoy fellowship with the real Jesus through listening and being faithful to his teaching. I think it's helpful to say on this, you might know that uh, Christians have, and throughout history, Christians are often taught, I think this is right, that there's essentially three places we can look to for assurance. If we're struggling with our assurance as Christians, there are three particular things God has given us to strengthen our assurance. So firstly, we can look at the person of Jesus and his work on the cross for us. Secondly, God's given us the testimony of the Holy Spirit. So Paul says in Romans how uh, God's spirit within us cries out, Abba, Father. The Holy Spirit reassures us that we are one of God's children. And then thirdly, we can also look at the difference and the transformation God has made in people's lives or our lives. See the, see the difference that God has made since we started following Jesus. Some people have said it's a bit like a, a three-legged stool where you have each of the legs on a stool, where one leg being the personal work of Jesus, second leg being 
uh, the ministry of the Spirit, and then the third leg being the, the difference we see in people's lives. And uh, just to, to back up this up with further evidence to, to, to support this, there's a verse later on in, in John's letter, chapter 3, uh, where each of these three legs seem to come together in, in just two verses. So chapter 3, verse 23 to 24, he says this, And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. In our passages, there almost seems to be those three legs all come together. He says, we look to Jesus, who he was in his work. We see the transformation. Now we're seeking to be people who love uh, our brothers and sisters in the faith. And we seek to keep God's commandments. There's a difference, a change. And then there's a spirit as well who abides in us. Now in our passage today from uh, chapter 1 and chapter 2, particularly John is focusing on, that, on that, that leg of the difference, the transformation. And when we see that difference and transformation Jesus made, it assures us that we are one of God's people. That we are to be people who are walking in the light, not walking in the darkness anymore. Uh, so that would mean things like walking in step with God's commandments, keeping God's word, knowing and practicing God's truth. Walking as Jesus walked. Not just walking the light when we become a Christian, but seeking to continue to walk in the light. We talked about earlier, a long obedience in the same direction. And John says that's the primary way, one of the primary ways we show our love for God. He talks about the love of God being perfected in us. Seems what he's talking about there is he's talking about our love for God reaches maturity, perfection, its goal. In, in, our, in practicing God's commandments. If you or I wanted to show our love for someone, your love for a friend or love for a family member, you might get them a gift or a present, you might buy them a bouquet of flowers. Well, John says the way that our love reaches its uh, full bloom, its maturity, the way we, we, we show our love for God is in practicing his commandments, walking as Jesus walked. I thought it might be helpful here if we did a little worked example. If, uh, try and imagine if you had some friends who came to you looking for advice. I think, I, no, I think the last time I tried to do a worked example in a sermon, I chose two names. I think I unknowingly chose the name of somebody's siblings or somebody's family members. I think I chose maybe Simon and Sarah. And someone came up to me and said, oh, I've actually got a brother and sister called Simon and Sarah. And I didn't know I was choosing their exact family name. So I choose two different names. Uh, we'll, this time we'll call them Henry and Harriet. Uh, if they happen to be your family members or people you know close to, it's not a prophetic word. And um, I, it's entirely accidental. I, I've, I've chosen them entirely at random. So imagine you've got two friends, Henry and Harriet. And these two friends, Henry and Harriet, they come to you, imagine, and they say they're struggling in their Christian life and they like your advice as a, as a, a fellow Christian. And they say, you know, they're doubting whether they are Christians. They, uh, they, they don't feel particularly close to God, maybe, and there seems to be a cloud over their relationship with God, and they're really struggling. Can you help them? Well, what could we say to Henry or Harriet from our passage today? Well, firstly, we could say to them, couldn't we, you know, is there a sin you need to repent of? Is there a sin you need to confess? Is there, is there, is there a sin that's actually clouding your relationship with God? If that is the case, then the answer from John is to confess, to repent, and trust in Jesus again. 
Then, of course, it might be the case, actually, might say, Henry or Harry might say, well, actually, no, I can't think of any uh, sin I've done which is clouding my relationship with God. But I still, I'm really not sure I'm having all these doubts. I'm having these struggles. I'm not sure I'm truly a Christian. I'm not sure of my security as a believer. But then what I think we can do from what John would say to us is we take them to that three-legged stool. In a sense, we want them to sit on it. We've got four four-legged chair here. Imagine it's a three-legged stool. We want our friends to sit, in a sense, on that three-legged stool. To then to, to meditate and focus on Jesus and his work. To get them to reflect, do they know the testimony of the Holy Spirit? And can they see ways in which their lives have changed, which previously they were walking darkness before the new Christ, but now they are walking in the light? Can they see a real difference in their life? Now, it might be, of course, once we've done those things, once we've pointed to those three things, maybe they're still struggling with assurance. Well, then we need to keep praying for them, supporting them, encouraging them uh, until they reach a place of rest and settled assurance in Christ. And it is possible to have assurance as a believer. John, John believes it is possible for us to have assurance and have a clear conscience today. It is something that's possible for us to have. That means for you and I, when we go to bed at night, we put our head on the pillow, we can go to bed at night knowing I have a clear conscience before the Lord and knowing I'm one of his children. Or when I go out of my house in the morning, on Monday morning, wherever I'm going into the day, how I'm going to spend the day, whether I'm doing the school run or whether I'm going to work, I can go out of the house in the morning, Monday morning, knowing I've got a clear conscience before the Lord and knowing I'm one of his children, he's with me in whatever Monday brings on to my path. So how can we have a clear conscience? Or we confess, we repent, we trust in Christ. How can we have assurance? Well, remember that three-legged stool we look to, the person work of Christ, the testimony of the Spirit, and that transformed life. Walking in the light, not walking in darkness. Well, if we know those things for ourselves, through Jesus, that should make us want to sing and lift our hearts and voices to the Lord.